Welcome to the Eyes on Retina podcast series by Boehringer Ingelheim. Vision impairment and blindness caused by retinal disease can have a profound and devastating impact on the lives of those affected, their family, and society as a whole. 2.2 billion people worldwide have vision impairment or blindness, of which at least 1 billion could have been prevented. Globally, the prevalence rates of retinal diseases are expected to increase over the next 10 years, primarily due to the aging populations and the global diabetes epidemic. In this podcast series, we hear from a range of ophthalmology experts involved in the care for people living with retinal diseases such as wet age-related macular degeneration, geographic atrophy, and diabetic retinopathy, as well as people living with these conditions. Hello. My name is Peter Kaiser. I'm the Cheney Family Endowed Chair in Ophthalmology Research at the Cole Institute and Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. And today I'll be hosting this episode of Eyes on Retina, Living with Diabetic Retinopathy. Diabetic retinopathy is a complication of diabetes caused by persistent high blood sugar levels that damage the retina in the back of the eye. Diabetic retinopathy can affect patients with type 1 or type 2 diabetes and can cause blindness if left undiagnosed or untreated. The risk of developing diabetic retinopathy is known to increase with age as well as with blood sugar and blood pressure levels. Approximately one-third of patients with diabetes are affected by diabetic retinopathy, and as the prevalence of diabetes is increasing, the prevalence of diabetic retinal disease will also rise, adding to the burden on healthcare systems worldwide. Unlike some other retinal diseases, there are different treatments for diabetic retinopathy, ranging from intravitreal pharmacotherapy to laser and even surgery. I'm joined today by world-renowned retinal specialist Tian Wong, who is the professor at the National University of Singapore and medical director at the Singapore National Eye Center, who has a wealth of experience in working with people living with diabetic retinopathy. In addition, we have Bernie, who has lived with diabetic retinopathy for the past nine years. So in order for our listeners to get to know us a little better, I have a little question for all of us to think about. Vision is the sense we are most aware of. However, interestingly, the sense of touch is the first sense to develop in humans. It can also play a part in evoking memory. So Chen, do you have any particular memories that are strongly associated with the tactile sensation? For instance, walking on grass barefoot. Thank you very much, Peter, and I'm very pleased to join this podcast. I think I'm going to be maybe romantic and cheesy here. I would say that the sense of touch, uh, my favorite memory would be when I first held my, uh, at that time, girlfriend's hands. Uh, now she's, of course, my wife. And I think uh, there's no greater joy than feeling and holding someone's hands. That's wonderful. Bernie, how about yourself? Hello, Professor Kaiser. I just want to thank you so much for inviting me to discuss diabetic retinopathy with you. And um, yes, indeed, I do have a memory, actually, of uh, something that involves touch. When I was very young, my parents had a house in Devon, which is in the south of England. And we used to go to a particular beach. And on this beach were lots of pebbles, which I used to love running on and playing with. And a couple of years ago, we went back to that beach um, with my parents, but also with my own family and my husband and while I was walking on that same beach it just brought lots of memories back to me about playing and it's been some lovely time there and I was able to share that with my family so yes indeed I understand what you're saying there. 
Yeah, I love walking on the beach. Well, we're going to talk today about diabetic retinopathy, and I'm going to start with you, Tian. You know, for our listeners, really, just how prevalent is diabetic retinopathy, and, and really, just what can you tell us about diabetic retinopathy? Thank you very much, Peter. I think we can go back to some basic, uh, really, data and statistics. We know that for every 10 people with diabetes, about three will have some signs of diabetic retinopathy. So one in three persons, essentially. And out of these three persons, one of them would have the most severe stages of diabetic retinopathy, which can threaten vision. So I might divide diabetic retinopathy into those which are the early mild stages, which could be asymptomatic for many patients, and those that are in the later stages that includes really two categories. One category is where there is growth of new blood vessels, what we call proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and it can cause bleeding, scarring, and ultimately loss of vision. And another fairly common severe complication would be where there's swelling and leakage of fluid from these tiny blood vessels in the eye, a condition that we'll be talking about, which is called diabetic macular edema. So our aim in management of diabetic retinopathy is really to prevent people with the early stages of diabetic retinopathy from progressing to the severe stages which will threaten vision and cause blindness. In terms of diabetic retinopathy, do all patients with diabetes develop diabetic retinopathy? Uh, and are there specific risk factors that make someone more likely to develop it or not? I think that's a very good question because there are many people with diabetes and some people will, of course, develop diabetic retinopathy. Who are these people? Well, we know that there are several well-established risk factors. First, the longer you have diabetes, the higher the risk of diabetic retinopathy. It has been found that probably within the first 10 years of diagnosis of diabetic diabetes, the risk of developing diabetic retinopathy is not very high. But this risk increases substantially after the first 10 years. And in fact, in people living with diabetes for 20, 30 years, then the risk of diabetic retinopathy increases substantially. So the first risk factor is really the duration of diabetes. Patients should not assume that just because they have been having diabetes for a long time and have had no problems with their vision, they are therefore protected from developing diabetic retinopathy. These false sense of security uh, will be problematic. And I think that patients need to understand the longer you have diabetes, the higher the risk of retinopathy. Another two risk factors are actually very important and are something that patients can do. The first is high sugar levels. So people with diabetes, of course, are told to control their sugar levels because not only is it good for their eyes, in which if you have good sugar control, it has been shown in very large randomized clinical trials that the risk of retinopathy and blindness is substantially lower. So the first 
important message is control the sugar levels. The second is high blood pressure. Large-scale randomized trials has also shown that if you have higher blood pressure, particularly if you have been diagnosed with hypertension, then you should control the blood pressure levels because the higher the blood pressure, the higher the risk of retinopathy, its progression, and the risk of vision loss. So I would summarize this by saying that the three main risk factors are duration of diabetes and higher sugar and blood pressure levels. I totally agree. And I think it's very important for our listeners to understand that, you know, most of the things that lead to diabetic retinopathy are certainly modifiable uh, and controlling your systemic levels is very important. Now, there are two different types of diabetes mellitus, type 1 and type 2. Could you explain to our listeners what the differences are between these two types, number one? And number two, how do they progress and do they progress differently in terms of diabetic retinopathy? I think that's a very good question. Type 1 diabetes is thought to occur really at a younger age, sometimes in children, sometimes when they are teenagers, so in the young adult population. And it's thought to have a significant genetic risk component. In addition, type 1 diabetes would typically require insulin injection. So sugar control is important, but they need insulin injections to control their sugars. In contrast, type 2 diabetes, which is more common, and probably 90% of people with diabetes are in the type 2 diabetes category, occurs in older people and is associated with obesity, a lack of physical activity, and um, it is seen in uh, people that are probably in the middle age, 40 to 60 years of age. Sometimes people with type 2 diabetes do not need any treatment and they just need good dietary control. Other times, they would need oral medications to control their sugar, and only in severe cases do they need insulin injection. So the two different types, type 1 occurring in younger people and type 2 occurring in older people are the spectrum of people with the diabetes. I have to say that the risk of retinopathy occurs whether or not patient has type 1 or type 2 diabetes. However, it has been found that for type 1 diabetes, the risk of retinopathy may occur somewhat earlier. And also, because they are younger people, they will be living longer with diabetes. And therefore, many patients with type 1 diabetes will end up with some retinopathy at some stage of the disease. Therefore, I would say people should be very concerned if, if they have type 1 diabetes and have not had eye checks on a regular basis. So, Bernie, you have diabetes. When were you first diagnosed with diabetes? And what did your doctor tell you about uh, how you were supposed to treat your disease? So. 
I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes um, in 1996 and I was expecting my first child and I was thinking about that more than anything else. But um, my doctor, he wanted me first to try just diet. Uh, he didn't know even if it was type 1 diabetes or not. And I tried very for a few weeks with diet, but then um, it was very quickly evident that I actually needed insulin. So I went on to injections at first and I injected insulin um, from then on in and, and I realised that that was how I would have to manage my diabetes as tablets uh, was not going to work for me. So when you were first diagnosed, did your doctor discuss with you uh, diabetic retinopathy and, and did they ask you to have any eye examinations at that point? No, not at that point. Um, and I'd never heard about diabetic retinopathy. And I didn't know about diabetic retinopathy for some years. I think maybe it was, a for me, a part of, do I really have diabetes? Um, and really adjusting to having uh, that condition. But also, it wasn't really at that point uh, really important to me. I didn't hadn't heard of it. And therefore, if he wasn't going to mention it, then I wasn't going to look out for it for myself. Sure. And that's unfortunately a common refrain. And hopefully our listeners will understand that that when you're first diagnosed with diabetes, um, it's actually important to get an eye exam at a minimum once a year so we can evaluate you uh, for diabetic retinopathy. So, Chen, when you talk about diabetic retinopathy, what are some of the common symptoms someone may have with diabetic retinopathy? I think one of the main issues with diabetic retinopathy is that the early stages of diabetic retinopathy, really patients are asymptomatic. Many patients really do not know they have diabetic retinopathy and could have diabetic retinopathy for a number of years if they do not have regular eye exams with their eye care professionals. So I think the first point for patients everywhere is that if you have diabetes, go and seek an eye exam. And even if it is normal, do it regularly at least once a year. I think that has to be the main message for everyone. However, in the later stages of diabetic retinopathy, for example, when people have one of the two severe complications, such as diabetic macular edema, where there's swelling at the uh, retina, particularly in the macular region, then of course patients might complain of cloudy vision, uh, inability to see shapes, inability to read letters, and of course that's when they start saying that their vision is impaired. So Bernie, uh, you were not told by your physician, so at what point uh, did you notice that there was something wrong with your vision uh, and make you go to your eye doctor? First, I'd like to say what Professor Wong has said, I completely relate to, absolutely. And um, I myself didn't really realise anything was wrong with my eyes until many years after having diabetes. I wear glasses myself. My prescription is quite high. So I went to, I had noticed that I wasn't seeing as well. And I thought, actually, maybe I just need new glasses. 
So um, it wasn't until 2011 that I actually realised that there was something wrong with my eyes. So I went to my opticians and said, I think I need new glasses. And um, they did a, a, an examination of my eyes, looked at the back of my eyes and said, actually, you don't need new glasses. You need to go to the hospital and be checked out because there's something wrong with the back of your eyes. Not uh, You won't be cured with having new glasses. So I'm certainly, that would be a shock to hear that. And again, I think this is really what Tian and I have been discussing, which is the importance of these regular eye exams to, to find the disease even before uh, it actually needs treatment. So Chen, what do physicians need to do to diagnose diabetic retinopathy? Well, actually, physicians have a variety of ways of diagnosing diabetic retinopathy. The common way, of course, is to do a clinical examination whereby uh, the physician will need to dilate the pupils and then have a look clinically at the retina. This is where diabetic retinopathy, the signs uh, of the damage are seen, which is at the back of the eye. Another common way of diagnosing diabetic retinopathy is, is to take a photograph of the back of the eye, what we call a retinal fundus pho photography. And this is now commonly done in many optometry and ophthalmologist uh, clinics. So it is fairly frequent for people to have that uh, photograph. A third way where we can diagnose diabetic macular edema, which is the swelling at the back of the eye, is using a new device, what we call an OCT, an optical coherence tomography scan which looks at the swelling of the eyes in a very objective manner. So, Bernie, when you were first went to the hospital, did they do any of these imaging to diagnose you? What, what was the process when you arrived? Yes, so when I first arrived, I had um, a vision test just to see what my vision was like. And then I had an OCT to see uh, what was going on in my eyes. And then after that, I went in to see the doctor to talk about what the results were. So for our listeners who may not have ever been to an eye doctor for diabetes, uh, were any of these tests uh, difficult, uh, painful? You know, how was it from your standpoint? They weren't painful at all. Um, and it got me thinking, you know, gosh, Perhaps I should have gone earlier, really. I, I think I was very worried about even the word hospital and what that meant. But as soon as I, I got there and I'd had to do the, all the tests done, I realized actually it was far easier than I had uh, assumed it was going to be. So I, I was glad that I was there. Super. So, yeah, for our listeners, this is really, um, it, it's not difficult. It's, it's a very easy exam, uh, something that, that doesn't hurt in any way. Um, and, and, you know, it's that important for patients to be diagnosed early. So, Chen, you know, diabetic retinopathy is obviously a problem of the retina, but what other problems to the eye can diabetes cause? Well, I think it is quite important to have a good eye check, not just for the retina, because people with diabetes do have cataract that develops much earlier than if people uh, do not have diabetes. So uh, many patients uh, with, uh, that are in their middle age could have blurring of vision because of cataract development. This, of course, can be treated with uh, cataract surgery. 
Another problem that people with diabetes might have will be a higher risk of glaucoma and therefore checking the intraocular pressure or the eye pressure as well as the uh, nerve and the function of the nerves are quite important. Occasionally, people with diabetes might have other vascular problems such as a retinal vein occlusion, which is uh, really like a mini stroke in the eye. These do not occur commonly, but when they do, of course, they cause severe vision loss. So if a patient uh, has diabetic retinopathy uh, and does not receive treatment, what complications can occur from this disease? Well, I think people with diabetic retinopathy, once it's diagnosed, really needs several ways in which we can prevent vision loss and ultimately blindness. The first is that if they have early stages of disease, they need regular follow-up, even if the patients are asymptomatic. So in other words, when patients are told they have some early changes in the retina, early stage diabetic retinopathy, and yet they feel fine, no impact on their vision, they should not be too happy that uh, they don't need any treatment. They do need regular eye screening. When patients are at the more severe stages of diabetic retinopathy, then of course, treatment is important. Now, there are a variety of treatments available now. We typically, for people with diabetic macular edema, would suggest a course of intraocular pharmacotherapy given with small little injection of medications that will inhibit the growth of blood vessels, as well as the leakage of blood vessels, reducing the macular edema. That is now the standard of care. So when the doctor says, you have diabetic macular edema, and we need to give small amounts of medication into the eye using a small needles, I think the patient should not be afraid because it is a common, well-accepted treatment. There are other modalities that the doctor may sometimes suggest. This include laser, as well as in severe cases, surgery to remove either scarring, blood, or other uh, complications. So, Bernie, when you were first diagnosed, were you told uh, about what the future would hold for you in terms of your eyes and, and the diabetic retinopathy? Um, yes. I mean, when I was in that appointment after I'd had my OCT, I was told I indeed would need to start uh, to have injections um, in my eyes. I was so frightened. I was shaking with nerves, but um, I soon I got used to having them. In fact, I've had them for nine years monthly now, and that's has been fine. It's, it's, it sounds a lot worse than it actually is, to be honest with you. It's one place you wouldn't want an injection. But actually, for me, I think, as they said to me at the time, you know, if you don't have these injections, you will lose more sight. And that is absolutely not what I wanted to do. But, you know, for me, my sight has deteriorated and that has been difficult. Um, and I've had to sort of reinvent myself in a way so that I can live a life as full as I possibly can. But I have to say those injections have definitely helped to slow down the progression of my retinopathy and particularly in my right eye. 
Yeah, and I'd have to say that that what you just said, Bernie, is really important for our listeners, which is, you know, the last thing in a world someone would think they would ever want done to them would be a shot in their eye. I think there's a nursery rhyme about that. Could you kind of tell our listeners, how was that? It sounds horribly painful. Is, is it painful at all? And, you know, you've gone through it a lot now. You know, are there aspects that you use to prepare yourself uh, prior to going to the doctor's office for these injections? Yes. Yeah, so I say I've had a lot now. Um, and in the early days, I, I just didn't know how I was going to cope. But I think actually it sounds, as I said, a lot worse than it actually is. And the thing that really helped me to get through getting onto that table, have the injection was thinking about the positive things that I'd be able to do because I was sure these injections were going to work. So that's what I'd focus on. I think, right, not what about the injection was going to happen, but actually what would I like to do once these injections worked? And I had visions of my my daughters walking down the aisle and be able to see them. And that really helped me to focus on that sort of thing. Dr. Wong, how often do these treatments uh, fail? Well, I think these treatments have been extremely useful for treatment of diabetic retinopathy in the last decade. And in many uh, clinics around the world, many patients have had very successful treatment. And I think the key to it is that when patients are offered this therapy, they need to understand that it's not a single injection. It is not a few injections in the first few months. It does require a course of treatment because diabetes probably has been around for long in these patients, and therefore there's some chronicity to the disease. So the injection is given over a course of months and typically even years. The good news is that with aggressive treatment with these injections in the first one to two years, there could be the possibility of fewer injections in the later years. And many patients will uh, therefore have continue to have good vision and quality of life if they follow the regular regimen of having these injections. So would you say that the long-term prognosis for someone with diabetic retinopathy, as long as they follow the treatment schedule and return to follow up with their physician, is it good or, or is it universally bad? Well, I would say that for the majority of patients, it is good. However, there continues to be of course, the subgroup of patients and inclu including uh, one of, of the two eyes that may not respond as well. Now, the percentage of what we call non-responders to this injection uh, varies, but probably it will be in the 20-30% range. So, although it is good for the majority of patients, 70-80%, there continues to be a group that may need additional treatment, and maybe even then, the risk of vision loss is still present. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and oftentimes, I, I tell my patients, because I think it's very important for them to understand that, you know, if they return for regular follow-up, if they follow our treatment plan, the risk of going blind from diabetic retinopathy is in exceedingly rare. Um, the patients who do go blind, and when I say blind, totally lose vision, are those who do not return for follow-up. 
and do not follow our course of action because in general, our treatments are actually rather good. So Bernie, you've also had some laser treatment and and we've discussed how laser treatment uh, is done oftentimes in a more severe forms. How was laser treatment? I had a laser treatment um, before I started individual injections. And yes, I mean, again, I have to say it was an experience I had to go through. Um, It was something that I knew was going to be beneficial. And I think that was so important for me to remember. Regardless of what it's like, it's going to be beneficial. And that's the thing that got me to the hospital in the first place. And um, yeah, I think it, it was, for me, it was just one of those things I had to sit and go through. It wasn't particularly nice, but it was over really quickly. And I actually, I definitely saw uh, benefits of having that laser treatment. And how has diabetic retinopathy affected your life? So, um, Professor Kaiser, it's, it's affected it quite a lot over a period of time. So I was diagnosed in 2011 with diabetic macular edema. And um, nine years later, I have found now that I um, need a lot more help um, in a variety of daily tasks. I am actually uh, now registered, partially sighted, I was registered in 2016, and I need help with reading I have problems recognizing people's faces and I have problems with colors but I live a I still live a really fulfilled life and I had to change um what I did with my life because I was a teacher and um unfortunately I couldn't do that job anymore but I've actually found other things I can do and I've found that I can for example help in other ways which I've found really really fulfilling so even though for me, after nine years of treatment, my vision isn't as good as it was, I'm still feeling really useful to society. Absolutely. How about friends and family? How, how has this impacted their relationships with you? Well, when I was first diagnosed, my children were relatively young, um, 11 and 13 years of age, and they were quite dependent still on me, actually, especially for driving around and um being there for them for particular reasons Um, and I found that I unfortunately a couple of years after being diagnosed I had to give up driving and that was a a big impact just not on myself my independence for them taking them out to where they needed to be as well Um, that was hard on them but I think it brought us closer together because I relied on them a bit more and for a variety of things and also with my husband um we, we became quite close, I think, close really as a family because I was relying on them more. I mean, for my husband, unfortunately, when we go out and I can't drive, he, he can no longer drink when we go out. But um, we still, we really do support each other in so many ways. And I think that's really helped. Friends and family have been really crucial to me. And what I have also found, Professor Kaiser, is that people want to help. You know, they like to help. They like to feel they're needed. And I have found that even though I've found it sometimes difficult to ask for help, actually, they've turned around and said, we love helping you. And it also means that they can ask me for help if they need something done as well, which means it can be so reciprocal. I think that's a very powerful message that you're giving our listeners because I find that to be absolutely true with my patients. They, they feel that they are a burden on their family 
or their friends, and and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, they're they're your family and friends for a reason, uh, and they absolutely want to help you. So, Bernie, you've been living with diabetic retinopathy for a while now. Are there any practical tips or advice that you would want to give another patient with this disease? Um, absolutely. When I was first diagnosed, um, first of all, I looked for other like for example charities that might be able to help me uh, local as well as national and they were such they had such great resources for me and tips and ideas um then i looked for example technology i think is such a wealth of information there um i use apps on my phone to help me that's been incredibly helpful um and i've just really just looked around for things that i can uh do for example what, what can I do now that I couldn't do um I've really focused um on the things I can do and I think for me that's been so important it's not I haven't tried to reflect on things I can no longer do but really now focus on things I can do because I can still do a lot of things and I think that's really helped me to move on in my life that's wonderful. Tian, you, I'm sure, have many patients in this situation. How do you empower your patients to continue to live safely and independently with diabetic retinopathy? I think Bernie has given uh, a very positive message. Uh, I do want to emphasize the positive uh, part of the therapy, which is that, number one, uh, we do have good treatments. Uh, we want to encourage patients to come back for follow-up. We want them to live as normal a life as possible, sometimes to uh, continue their activity, their work, uh, as well as their social life. I think those are important things that I always tell my patients to uh, look at and really enjoy life uh, in between the visits and in between the treatments. Don't keep thinking about it. Uh, of course, by all means, uh, control sugar and blood pressure. But meanwhile, I would say they need to be positive and uh, there is hope for many patients with diabetic retinopathy. So Bernie, what about the future? When you look into the future, what are your worries about living with diabetic retinopathy? That's a really good question, Professor Kaiser. I wonder what the future will bring. Um, I'm a really positive person and I do keep that um, at the fore of my mind. But I, firstly, I don't know quite where this is going to end in my journey, as in, will I carry on with treatments? Or will there be a different treatment? So I'd be very interested to know what other treatments may be in the pipeline. If either of you could answer that question, that would be really um, useful to know. That's That's one of my things that I, I, I constantly worry about because there's been laser and there's been um, injections. So is it something else that's in the pipeline, especially if you are coping with diabetes as well as a sight loss? I think that's something that we have to all remember. It's two chronic um, ailments you're suffering from. And I think it's important to try and keep those um uh, your your ability to look after both uh, something together rather than two separate issues so that's the way I've sort of thought about in the future where's it going treatment wise and what is my future going to be these are excellent questions Chen 
There's a lot of research going on in diabetic retinopathy. Could you share with our listeners some of the ideas that you think may be most promising, say, five, 10 years from now? Yes, I, I think, uh, Peter, uh, as, uh, as you are also quite well aware, there's many research going on around the world. Uh, and maybe I can uh, classify this as those that will increase the ability to screen for diabetic retinopathy, such as newer imaging modalities, including the use of uh, artificial intelligence. So hopefully that will pick up people with early diabetic retinopathy much better in many different countries. The second, of course, involves therapy, which is treatment. And we've talked a lot tonight about in the use of these injection pharmacotherapy. Now, what the listeners may not be aware is that although we have made a lot of progress in these pharmacotherapies, they have only targeted one particular pathway, or one particular mechanism of diabetic retinopathy, which is to inhibit the growth of these very abnormal new blood vessels. We are now discovering that there are other pathways which offers the exciting possibility, and there are now many research, including late-stage clinical trials going on, that targets other pathways, such as inflammatory pathways, such as pathways that lead to leakage, as well as other mechanisms, including neurodegeneration. So I would think that in five to 10 years' time, we will have a variety of treatment for patients with diabetic retinopathy, which means that we should keep hoping and patients should not lose hope that there will always be new treatments available, particularly in the near future. Yeah, I think this is very exciting for our patients because uh, at the beginning, uh, we really only had laser treatment, and that was why Bernie was first treated with laser treatment back in 2011. Then this advent of the intravitreal injections came about, and this has revolutionized our treatment of diabetic macular edema in particular, but also diabetic retinopathy because receiving the injections can actually improve the retinopathy. But we're moving on to our next step because not all patients respond to anti-VEGF medications. So these new pathways will hopefully allow us to even better treat our patients. And I know we're actually working on much longer duration anti-VEGF agents. So Bernie's been getting injections on a monthly or even every other month basis. Um, and in the future, we hope to have treatments that may last four to six months or even longer. We're actually working on one treatment, which involves gene therapy, which may confer lifelong uh, anti-VEGF protein being produced. So, so that would illuminate the need for injections for the life. So, so the future is very bright in terms of treatments for this really very common diagnosis. So Professor Wong and Bernie, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today about diabetic retinopathy. I really hope our listeners have found this as interesting as I certainly have. Uh, before we finish, I'm going to give each of you a chance to really summarize your feelings. So I'm going to start with you, Professor Wong. Would you like to add anything before we finish? Well, I think uh, I would say that diabetic retinopathy is a common disease, but it's certainly not a disease that is without hope. And we have managed to do extremely well 
in the last 30 to 50 years. Uh, as uh, Peter, you have adequately summarized, there are extremely exciting, innovative research coming out in the next five to 10 years. And what we're looking for is not just treatment, but hopefully a cure for diabetic retinopathy. That's something to really look forward to in the future. And Bernie, uh, living with this disease, please summarize for our listeners sort of how you view things. Um, As a patient, you know, I, I, although it's difficult to live with such a disease, there is so much hope out there. And I think this podcast has really shown that, that there's research going on. We're not going to be stuck where we are. And I think it's really important that patients understand that and that they do go for their retinopathy screening, um, even if they don't think there's something wrong. You never know. It's like going to the dentist, you know, put it in your diary because we, it's so important that you actually look after your eye health just by going to check because there may be something uh, going on there that you don't realise. And I think it's so encouraging to know about the, the advances that are being made um, as a patient and it, that gives so much hope to us all. Well, thank you both. And thank you to our listeners for this Eyes on Retina, Living with Diabetic Retinopathy podcast. You've been listening to the Eyes on Retina podcast series by Boeinger Ingelheim and this episode on living with diabetic retinopathy. Don't forget to click subscribe or follow to listen to our next episode.